This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the boss does Europe. Barack Obama just returning from a four-country, six-day trip that includes a meeting of the G8. But once again, the best-laid plans of presidential diplomacy are upended by events beyond White House control. Our guests today have dealt with exactly this kind of thing before. Jake Seward, former White House press secretary and currently senior advisor to Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, and Daniel Cruz, former director of public affairs for the National Security Council under President Clinton. Of course, I am joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of our website, polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was production chief in the George W. Bush White House, and it is great to have you here. Adam, it is great to be here. It's one of those wonderful weeks in the spring that's beautiful here in uh, in the Northeast United States, and it's beautiful in Europe. It's and politic and weather. It is politic and weather, and it's European visit weather, and the president's going to, has gone to... Uh, Ireland and go to and England and France uh, to, for the, culminating in the G8 summit. And I had some of my best memories of tr- bringing President Clinton to Northern Ireland and to Dublin. Uh, we, we talked last week about how much we enjoyed uh, the visits that we spent at, in Normandy where the G8 will be held in Deauville. So uh, when you think about uh, getting the, preparing the president for that five or six hour flight over the Atlantic to land in Dublin <clears throat> and to return to Europe. Uh, these are some of the, the trips that really have classic presidential images associated with them. But just as we discuss so often, as soon as the president is wheels up is when uh, something usually comes up. And this has been no exception. Uh, the vast majority of America is looking towards the center of our great nation right now because we've got fellow citizens who have lost their homes and their neighborhoods and all manner of resources from supermarkets to uh, hospitals, the bevy of tornadoes that have been tearing through uh, the center of our country are just leaving a, a, just a rampage of destruction in their wake. And the president has been forced uh, to stay very engaged. And once again, even while he's out there doing the business of the nation abroad, he's forced to uh, to, to look back towards the U.S. And he's already made very clear that as soon as he's done, he's going to be down there in Joplin, Missouri uh, this weekend. That's right. The frequency and the severity of tornadoes in the Midwest this year is uh, has not been equaled since the early 1970s. Uh, you know, and he's obviously in close touch with his domestic policy advisors and the governors of those respective states planning for uh, for disaster relief, and he'll be there this weekend. So you always take uh, the, the world stage as you have to uh, during these summits, but always keep your eyes focused back home. You and I have, have shared a lot of memories on polyoptics here on POTUS uh, about these amazing and classic trips that presidents make to Europe and uh, we've been to Asia, we've been to Africa with presidents of the United States. One of the things that we do so well here at Polyoptics is have an opportunity to talk to people who've been on the front lines. And today is no exception. Uh, Jake Seward is joining us. He's a senior counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury, but somebody who comes at Polyoptics from frontline experience, having served as 
the press secretary in the final days of the Clinton administration, but somebody who is uh, no stranger to some of the hard decisions and balancing acts that that, uh, are required to make public audience for the President of the United States. And of course, Daniel Cruz, who uh, had a very interesting job in the Clinton administration, public affairs chief for the National Security Council. He was also Assistant Press Secretary for Foreign Affairs. Daniel and Jake, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Nice to be here, Adam. Josh, uh, this is for you and I, perhaps one of our most favorite type of weeks, because you've got the President of the United States who's traveling abroad, and there's so much to take a look at. But once again, we find ourselves uh, confronted with the reality that anytime the president is planning a foreign trip, you can almost bet that that there'll be something that you didn't count on. In this case, it's a national emergency, at least in a number of states where we have been confronted with horrific weather, tornadoes taking lives throughout Missouri and other states. And uh, the president is trying, I think, very hard to make sure that people appreciate not only is the administration active with governors and trying to do the role that they're expected to do in a, an emergency management situation, but that the president is still engaged. That's right, Adam. I mean, one on the one hand, it is springtime in Europe, in the United Kingdom, and in France, and in Ireland, where the president's going this has gone this week. Uh, the run up to this is so much fun for people like you and me planning these trips because they are really to where where history began in the in the west in uh, the Western world. And on the other hand, when you actually get on site and you do so much planning. Uh, I think back to our G7 in Naples, Italy, I think in 1994, we get there, the dollar uh, crashes, and the leader of North Korea dies. We are at the G7 in Lyon, France, a few years later, and the uh, uh, compound in Saudi Arabia is bombed. Uh, You can't get away from world events, and you can't get away from domestic events when a tornado touches down in Joplin, Missouri. Well, Jake, uh, you know, the administration has been confronted by this even in the trip down to South America, which is a very important trip uh, that the the State Department and the president worked very hard on uh, with relation to trade issues before they ever left. And they get down there and, you know, the Arab Spring is sprung and Libya is blowing up. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the quandaries you always find yourself in when you're planning a trip. You can't anticipate where the world will be, where the media will be uh, uh, paying attention. I remember being in the private sector once in 1989, watching uh, uh, one of the network anchors broadcast broadcast from the Grand Place about a NATO summit that was happening underway. Meanwhile, there there was a protest in the middle of Tiananmen Square, and he could not have looked more out of place. He's in the middle of Europe. The news is happening in China. And so Peter Jennings spent that whole evening saying, uh, over to you in Beijing. Right, tossing it to where the news really was. Yeah. and, And look, the president these days, as you know, can be in touch anywhere, and they can be on top of things anywhere. Um you also know that you don't really want to be at the disaster site day two or three because a presidential trip with all its trappings can distract from the rescue efforts that are underway. And the most important thing is that those efforts proceed apace. But you've got to show visually and through what you're doing that you're still engaged. And that's why the second the president touches down, he'll be heading out there uh, over the weekend when hopefully most of the rescue efforts are underway, and he can talk a little bit about what the government can do hey, on reconstruction. Daniel, um, one of the things that comes to my mind from a polyoptics perspective 
which I think must play in some part in sort of reworking the best laid plans from a national security council and national security staff with regard to the foreign uh, process bits of this trip. The White House Flickr stream is something that's usually very robust and something that they will showcase so many wonderful images. But one thing that I have noticed over the last couple days are that those images are coming out very slowly now. You can go to Getty and you can see mm. the full litany of where the president's been and what he's done and how beautiful Michelle Obama has looked, and I think she really has. But what do you see on the Flickr stream? The first picture you see is a picture of the president speaking to governors. He's taking time out of the trip to make sure that he's staying connected, and I think that's a very important image in addition to drawing a a Guinness and having a drink. What do you think about that, Daniel? I mean, I think you you have to you know you have to balance the the substance of the trip with the images of the trip, and clearly you know the the, the G eight is a, is a lengthy lengthy process in terms of setting up such a meeting, and it's an ongoing process. So it's it's not only you know it's months and months in the making, and there are designated uh, people in each of these uh, eight countries that are G eight Sherpas, and their main jobs in government is to advance the the uh, the agenda of the G8, right? So you have, you have, uh, you know, Mike Froman in the United States, who's 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 the G8 uh, G8 Sherpa for the U.S. You have a, a guy called Olivier Colon in France, uh, Arkady Volkovich in, in in Russia, and all these people are are not only dedicated to the G8 process and now the G20 process, but are also incredibly close to uh, to the to the president, and uh, and close to to decision making, and so. And so as you, you know, as you kind of balance what's happening domestically and you balance the, the amount of work that has gone, on, gone into preparing for the substance of these, of, of these meetings, you have to be very selective in what you, you put out, uh, both you know, in terms of news and in terms of pictures. Hey, Josh. Daniel, I just wanted to ask a question of Daniel. As you, behind the scenes, let's push back 90 days before G8, what are people like Mike Froman and his counterparts from the other seven countries talking about? And then segue to you're actually landing in Deauville, France, and the leaders are getting together. And then you as head of public affairs for the National Security Council, Jake Seward as White House press secretary, you don't have a lot of work to do at this point. You're sort of waiting, 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 twiddling your thumbs, trying to maybe doing a readout or a briefing and then trying to bring reporters out to dinner to help explain what's going on. For everyone who doesn't really understand what a Sherpa is, could you give us some background? That's exactly what I was going to say. I was smiling. I was like, no, really, they call it that. It's a Sherpa. <laughs> and if people are thinking about, like, you know, uh, you know, what is it, uh, Caddyshack? And he's like, you know, I'm, uh, I'm carried clubs for the llama, and we're on the last hole, and uh, it looks like he's going to stiff me. All right, go ahead. Well, I think on the substantive end, there you know there are really two parts to to the summit, and one of the parts is this this effort of trying to get uh, some kind of compromise on the agenda, right? So right now you're looking at the economic aid packages to the Tunisias and Egypts of the world. You're looking at nuclear safety issues, and you're looking, you know, specifically with France uh, at the Libya issue. Um, the 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 issue of IMF, you know, creeped up at the last minute with uh, Mr. Strauss-Kahn's uh, issues in New York. And so that's added. But I think in terms of, of, of broad agenda, a Sherpa is someone who will kind of direct the broad agenda of the, of the, 
of the of the G8, and each country will have a slightly different angle in what they want and what they want to come out in terms of communique. And remember, a lot of this G8 stuff is about image, is about what comes out in terms of language of 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 the of the meetings. The second piece are the bilaterals, and there again, the Sherpa, you know, as as a, the, the the individual that is in charge of the process uh, for the for the for the given country. Uh, and in, in the U.S. Uh, case, Mike Froman will you know have a real say in which you know bilaterals the president meets. So there's there's there are seven other uh, leaders there, and what are the two or three meetings? And this is a you know timing issue. What are the two or three meetings that are important enough at this point in time for the president to meet one on one? And I think a lot of the real deliverables that come out of a meeting like that comes out of come out of these of these bilaterals. What struck me about this trip, Daniel, Daniel's right. The issues are very modern. They're very new. Um, and yet the images on this trip from Ireland, from France, and from the UK are just classic set pieces. You know, presidents have been doing them for 20, 30, 40 years. That, some of those photos could have been taken at almost any time. The same queen, the same Guinness, <laughs> same... Uh, they're really... They're, they're, and for this president who is so modern, who's, you know, a, a, a man of the 21st century, um, there's something actually very... Um, I think reassuring to a lot of Americans to see them in those kind of classic settings at the pa- at, at at Buckingham Palace at the pub in Ireland. These are things that American presidents have been doing for decades, really. Jake, like Bill Clinton and Jack Kennedy before him, did it surprise you at all that Barack Obama has deep Irish roots? <laughs> you know, I I, I actually didn't. It, I hadn't paid much attention, but it was obviously pretty deftly done. He he didn't take it too seriously, made a bunch of jokes about missing the apostrophe and the Obama. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, it was, it was kind of cute and kind of light. It was interesting, though, because it was a very light moment. Um, and actually, Ireland needs a light moment because it's mired, as we all know, in a pretty deep economic morass. But it was an interesting contrast, and I think the Irish people appreciated it. Uh, to what they're actually going through right now, what's happening. I mean, they're in a, in a deep economic funk, and I think this was a, a kind of... Uh, seemed to be a refresher both for the Irish people and, and obviously for the president seemed to enjoy his time there. You are listening to a uh, great discussion with Daniel Cruz and Jake Seward, who's currently serving in the uh, Obama administration over at the Treasury Department uh, here on Polyoptics, Politics of the United States, Sirius XM 124. You know, Daniel, you were talking about those bilats and, uh, you know, my experience having served in the White House extended to creating images and set pieces for G20 summits, uh, dealing with with bilats at at, at G8 summits. And a lot of these pictures uh, are very important for domestic political consumption, not just here at home, but for all of the other leaders. And of course, you know, uh, better than anyone, uh, I think, Daniel, that you have a lot of other countries who come to these meetings to seek audiences with with leaders and, and, and try and push their agenda and, and stay relevant. And one of the pictures that I've seen recently uh, that's been up on Getty uh, Images, which I always say is a great place to sort of follow along, you know, is this bilat between uh, Barack Obama and Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the president of Russia. Will he be uh, the president of Russia much longer, do you think? Well, I, I think that your, your point is exactly right. I mean, the, the, the image, the force of the image, both uh, in the United States, but in this case, more importantly, at home in Russia for, for Medvedev is so important, right? I mean, where he's he's uh he's battling it out with uh, with Putin in terms of who's going to run for what uh early next year and uh and he's also we're we're about to engage in this big debate in the United States in terms of R- Russia's accession to the WTO 
And it's really, you know, Putin had been trying for, for a decade to get Russia into WTO without succeeding. Now Medvedev seems to be very, very close to getting Russia into WTO. They're saying that their negotiations uh, for the, for the, uh, the package will end in July. And, uh, and then we'll have a big debate in the fall because our Congress has to, has to ratify permanent trade status for Russia. So I think the image of having Medvedev and, and, and Obama together right now is going to be critical when you come to that debate and uh, interesting, in a few months. And interestingly, this is a stage that Putin can't share with Medvedev, is it? I mean, the G8 is for leaders only. Uh, Putin has to stay behind in Russia. He has shown himself as a master of the polyoptic moment with a snafu or two. But the ability to climb into the cockpit of a fighter jet, drive a, a four-wheel vehicle through swampland, right. uh, uh, show his jujitsu mastery. I mean, this is a formidable candidate if he decides to try and retake the presidency, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think his, you know, he, he holds a lot of the cards uh, in country, but I think it's a, it's a real sign uh, by our administration, by, by our president, that he's meeting with Medvedev at this point, it's in, 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 the, in the language coming out of the bilat, you, you saw the mention of, of WTO accession, and it's a real endorsement of what Medvedev is trying to do uh, in, in Russia right now. Jake, while these bilats are going on, or in the evening in Deauville, or in London, or in Dublin on the arrival night, what do you as the White House Press Secretary and the team from the White House Press, Sec- press Office that you bring along what are you doing? What are your responsibilities? And, and how do you, at the end of the day, try and have a little fun with the reporters who are traveling along with you? Well, in Europe, it's quite traditional to, um, because of the time change, you, you really need to be on your guard until fairly late in the day because the news cycle here closes much later. So, I mean, there are always these plans to uh, have dinner with reporters because everyone's out uh, out of the country and, and the day wraps up. And typically the, the leaders have some dinner, which is um, nothing more than a toast or two, not very substantive. So, you, you know, usually you plan a, a dinner with a reporter and off the record that gives you a chance to check in what they're thinking. Sometimes there's such a bubble around the present that some insignificant thing is really taking off and defining the story. And the dinner might be the place where you can kind of um, bring them back to kind of what the what the trip's all about. Um, half the time, those dinners seem to fall apart because something's happening somewhere around the world and you show up an hour late and um, you know, have time to like have one drink and uh, an appetizer, and then you got to run back and and deal with something. Um, particularly in the modern era of communications, where things are just going on all the time somewhere. So I imagine that Jay Carney, you know, who's a veteran in these trips, both in the press um, and now on the other side of the podium, probably has plans to have dinner and do some fun things. But he, you know, for all I know, he's on a conference call. Uh, half the night dealing with Joplin, Missouri. Absolutely, or, or trying to figure out what needs to change. You know, they've already had, um, besides what's going on here, but they've had this uh, volcanic activity that caused them to leave uh, their Ireland uh, event early and then make their way over to uh, to Britain. The pictures, <clears throat> the, 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 the visual elements, I love the G8, because and Daniel mentioned this, that it takes a year to plan these things. Plan, I mean, it's yeah. just from a substantive perspective, but then also from the set pieces, the visual complement is great. You're going to have this 
what we call a family photo of all the leaders, which is a great benchmark for who was where and did what at a certain time in someone's presidency or in that arc of history. And I'm just sitting here looking through the computer uh, at, at what Getty has is, is, is put out because uh, it's still the, the best place to get them. And I see this one picture, Josh. Uh, it's the only tight shot I could find, and it's of Carla Bruni from the uh, waist down. <laughs> it's just a, a tight shot of the French first lady's legs. And, uh, you know, I guess they love that at home and who wouldn't. But, uh, you know, this is a lot about uh, who is with you, uh, how wonderful your first lady is in addition to the politics. Uh, it, it, it really is a little bit about who's the most charismatic and, and who is the leader everyone wants to be with the most, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, this is... Uh... If you look at the images not coming out of this year, but but last year, remember at the G20, uh, there was that uh, funny moment when <clears throat> uh, uh, President Sarkozy of France and <laughs> President Obama are lining up for one of these Jake, class photos. Jake, do you photos. remember this? Well, I was actually thinking of a different photo, which Josh talked about, Naples. And the New York Times ran a photo, I remember, because my mother was incensed, where the president was leaning over talking to someone, and it appeared as though he's looking at, at the woman next to him, sort of That's peering right. down her... Uh, her, her dress and that that photo was the only thing anyone cared about on that trip as last year's photo very right. similar moment everyone was sort of stealing and that a was look. a fake photo i mean it wasn't it a, was fake a fake photo, photo but it was completely the, misinterpreted that's right, right. and that, i've written about this at polyoptics and, and jake tapper from abc news properly looked at the video and broke it down and showed how there was no way that president obama could have possibly been copying that look he was just trying to make room for this woman on the other hand, President Sarkozy took a very extended ga- uh, look at what was going on. And the, the problem with summits are from that you can plan them, but the substance is typically so pre-cooked that it gets leaked well in advance. Um, the Sherpas that we talked about earlier have done a lot of the heavy lifting, and the presidents just formalize what they've already done. So the press tends to be kind of bored, and what you've got to be on your guard for these events. Nothing more dangerous than board press. a board press. press, especially when they're, you know, when when <laughs> sometimes they're reporting after dinner in Europe when they've had a, a glass of wine or two. And you've just got to, so, the, the, the potential for some side story to emerge and kind of trump the best laid plans. And, and it could be something totally insignificant that just gets fired up. Is The potential is so high that you have to sort of be on your guard even when nothing is happening. You're listening to uh, Polyoptics here on POTUS, Politics of the United States, Sirius XM 124. I am your host, Adam Belmar, joined by Josh King. And uh, our two guests today, uh, currently serving in the uh, Obama administration as a counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Jake Seward, who formerly uh, served in the Clinton administration. He's done a lot of things in his life, but he brings uh, a great deal of firsthand knowledge to dealing with the press and working with the President of the United States, especially on foreign trips like the one we're dealing with. Uh, And Daniel Cruz, of course, who uh, was a chief of public affairs in the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. Gentlemen, I want to ask you, uh, from a substantive perspective, let's go through the looking glass. Uh, Daniel, perhaps you could enlighten us. What is the most important foreign policy headline that we should glean from this trip? Um. I mean, I think I think at the end of the day, it's going to be the Middle East, and it's going to be you know what what comes out uh, both in terms of of aid package in Tunisia and Egypt, and also looking at the bilateral with Sarkozy, uh, what uh, what comes out in terms of further uh, cooperation between France, NATO, United States, 
in, in Libya and how long are we going to drag out, you know, uh, Gaddafi's departure? I've seen pictures of uh, Angela Merkel doing a bilat with the president of Tunisia. Is that what's going on in the background there? Of course, there's a lot of that. And, and remember that uh, Merkel... Uh, is not seeing the president one-on-one -on, -one on on this trip, but she's coming to the United States, I think, next week uh, for a, for a state visit. So uh, a lot of a lot of behind the scenes, uh, behind the scenes action. You know, the the other thing that's interesting is that you know this this thing is in France, is in Deauville, and I think Deauville as a as a place is is symbolic because it's close to the Normandy beaches, and uh, and it's and it's clearly a beautiful time of year to be there. But uh, the French are hosting, and it coincides with them presiding over over the G8 for this year. So they have one year of presidency, and so for them, they want they want to be aggressive on the substance and get a lot of things out of their presidency, uh, and and also they want to have you know the perfect summit, and uh, and for the French, it's a really really big deal. And you and you you know you you remember there are many many instances, and, and maybe the George Bush vomiting over the over the the, the Japanese George H W Bush George H W Bush. This was not on my watch. <laughs> uh, the of the, the prime minister. I mean, there are a lot of things that can happen that will just kind of take uh, the summit away and make the single headline. And right, while well, Marlon Fitzwater is trying to have a drink. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and then you forget, and then you forget that you know the French, you know, spent a year doing preparing for this, and this is a big deal for them. No doubt about that, Jake. Uh, I want to turn the conversation to go back on this trip for a little bit because. Uh, there were some elements that have gotten a lot of attention here at home, uh, not the least of which was a couple of cover pictures in the majority of newspapers inside the Beltway, but for those newspapers that weren't dominated by these horrible headlines of storms, uh, in particular, the President of the United States having a, uh, a glass of beer while he was in Ireland. Uh, I love the picture, but he's taken flack for it. Um, undeserved or deserved, and then and alternatively, um, again, cast against the backdrop of what's going on at home, the president was playing a little ping pong with the uh, prime minister of, of Great Britain. Uh, it turns out he's not really a ping pong guy or a bowling guy, uh, but they keep putting him out there in sports that he's not. I mean, come on, let him, let him, how about a layup? Let's show him what he's got. But what did you think about all that and, and those images? The ping pong trip for Korea. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much. I haven't followed it close enough to know what was planned and what wasn't. You have to assume that, I mean, a pres I, I don't know that there's a president that has gone to Ireland without setting foot in a pub and having a... a uh, some of our Ireland's finest. Well, we um, to, so we, we I, went to Northern Ireland with President Bush, and we did not drink. But that was more about him. About than him, right? No, and I think. Look, I think. I think you go to Ireland, you step foot in a pub, and you have a Guinness. There's nothing wrong with that, and Americans understand that. And for this president, who has some Irish ancestry. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's a it's it's part of what Irish Americans always do when they visit Ireland, and. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The ping pong one, I don't know if that was planned, if if they just happened upon it. Uh, I guess, they were visiting I, a school. They were visiting a school. But, you know, it's funny. A lot of times, um, uh, Josh knows this because he worked on a lot of trips. You uh, you walk into the room sometimes when at, 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 at game day and game time, and all of a sudden there's something there, and it catches the president's eye, and, and, they, the and you can't stop them. They run off and do something, you know, whether it's uh, – uh, sports or something else, and you know, you just you just got to roll with it. And that photo, I guess, particularly because they were both left-handed, and they seemed. To <laughs> but Josh, was um, that a disaster? I mean, I've had people tell me that was just the the most ridiculous image 
to have plastered on American newspapers. Well, but keep in mind that you, you know you got to look at the the UK setting too. I mean, there's been some flack um, the the U.S. has gotten for its treatment of 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 Britain. That's right. Um, closely, some of it some of it quite unfair, some of it misunderstood, but. In the power of of David Cameron and and Barack Obama playing together and kind of enjoying a light moment, that that probably did a lot to um, smooth some feathers in the context. Um, in some some things that had come up earlier that implied that they weren't weren't that close, and I, I think it did a lot of healing there. In a domestic context, it seemed to me kind of harmless, but maybe uh, maybe I wasn't paying close no, enough attention. No, I, I I don't ha- I didn't have it. These things come and go, Adam. You know, on the on day one of this trip. Uh, breaking news, the president's limousine, also known as the Beast, is driving outside of the Irish president's residence and gets caught on a iron uh, gate divider. And literally this this machine, this tank that is designed to withstand rocket-propelled grenades comes to a screeching halt because it can't get through a door. And, and I thought, oh my God, the trip is now a disaster. It's not. 24 hours later... Uh, again, he's he's tipping the Guinness and things are all fine. Uh, I'm, glad, the, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the, that was uh, that you know for 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 American pride that was just a little bit embarrassing, and uh, you know that's what adv- good advance work and that falls on the on the part of the uh, of the service uh, is all about and and it does sort of give this uh, juxtaposition of American power and strength and you know not a place of vulnerability when the boss is in the car but. As it turns out you can handle anything but a little piece of metal that sticks up, and the audio was just like people were aghast. But you're but, right; you just roll on, you move past and, it. And again, if you are trying, if if as Jake says, the so-called special relationship developed during World War II and the Cold War had begun to ebb a little bit, especially during Gordon Brown's tenure as Prime Minister and beginning of David Cameron's tenure. Nothing defines a special relationship more than two guys trying to share one side of a ping pong table. You've got to be pretty dexterous and you've got to realize that maybe a paddle's going to hit you in the head. But two guys playing ping pong with a bunch of students, that says something. And I think Jake's right. It says something more perhaps to a British audience than an America, American audience, which I think will move on to something else 24 hours later. Well, Josh, let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, Jake uh, Seward talked a little bit earlier about... Uh, the the polyoptics of this event, uh, this trip to the UK, and the fact, well, really, the the trip uh, as a whole, that these are pictures that you might see uh, from any event, and I think that that's true in some respects. But there are a couple of of pictures and in, in, in set pieces of this trip that are unique, and one of them was this outdoor press conference with uh, the prime minister, but. Talk a little bit about the other one, uh, this address to Parliament in a place in a way that we've never seen an American president do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at the picture now, and I was, uh, it was a, it was a, a thoughtful, substantive speech. Um, there are former prime ministers Gordon Brown, Tony Blair looking on, in addition to Prime Minister Cameron. Uh, the audience is full, and there is President Obama speaking uh, before the teleprompter and giving his speech. Um, again, these things happen sort of outside the U.S. news cycle. People aren't paying a lot of attention, but it's so important to, when you to in terms of introducing yourself uh, to Europe and to the United Kingdom uh, to make a speech like that. Um, and then, interesting, a whole interesting set of images from London: the president uh, toasting the Queen, 
uh, perhaps losing his timing a little bit during the well, let's stop British right National there. Anthem. Did, you, did everyone catch that? And raise your glasses as I propose a toast. To Her Majesty the Queen, to the vitality of the special relationship between our peoples, and in the words of Shakespeare, to this blessed plot, this earth. And as you could hear, the, the band just sort of came up out of nowhere, Josh. To the Queen. Well, that's that's British military precision for you. They don't wait for a U.S. president for their cue. Um, well, I just you know, if if we had done that at home, uh, people would be more than a little upset with us for having preempted the Queen. What you saw in the video was the Queen, who's been at this for sixty years now, uh, properly doing what is supposed to happen. The U.S. president, who's been at this for two years, uh, corrects himself and and things get back on track. These snafus happen all the time. They become fodder for the Daily News and the Daily Mail in the UK, uh, and they're forgotten pretty much a day later. Uh, I have to credit the Daily Mail uh, for so understanding the modern digital age. When you read a story online and there's a, a, a link on the Drudge Report to an unflattering picture of one one unflattering picture of of a million beautiful ones of the first lady Michelle Obama, but when you click on to the Daily Mail, you get a wonderful slideshow of what is happening uh, to the president and first lady when they visit the realm. Jake, isn't that really what it's all about? I mean, if there's not a slideshow to go with it, if there's not some way to communicate, even in a produced way, uh, the visuals and give people a bit of an emotional connection to where their president is and and this idea that these relationships and these uh, meetings between us and our most close allies uh, are taking place. It's almost as though a tree fell in the wood and no one heard it. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the reality is this is the power of the presidency. You know, the the these are very, in, in some ways, very uninteresting photos in some in some level. I mean, the presence in in the in the UK, he's seeing the Queen. He's in Ireland. He's at a pub. Um, we we like them because we sort of follow this, but they're on the front page of every newspaper every day. You know, that's something that as the president enters an election year next year, none of his competitors can be able to match because he there's no one else has that that ability to be the head of the state and to kind of and this is reverting to a very traditional kind of set of optics around the presidency as you head into. Um, a political thing is just an advantage that every president has and every president uses to some level. I, I'm not saying this trip is about politics. Frankly, it's 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 about uh, the the issues that 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 Daniel outlined. But it gives the president, the incumbent, a huge advantage. It's part of the reason why the press can't resist those images of the president and the queen, the president in the pub. That that it's one of the reasons that the incumbent has such a huge advantage. Um, in any kind of re-election bid. And by the way, the incumbent gets to fly to Joplin, Missouri the day he gets home and, and cover the other side of his, his flank. You know, one of the things that uh, my wife was most interested in, and, and I think for you know Jake sort of puts his finger on it, if you're listening to Polyoptics and you're a fan of POTUS here at SiriusXM, then this is stuff that matters to you, and breaking it down and pulling back the curtain a bit is, is a great curiosity and a lot of fun. But who else did the president see or was he pictured with while he was in England? Well, A number one for those people who love Us Magazine and others is the uh, the newly married <laughs> Prince of England and his bride. And that, Josh, was a great image, I thought, and very thoughtful, I thought, strategically. They didn't upstage him at the uh, 
state dinner. There was, this was a sort of behind-the-scenes, very cordial meet-and-greet, but nothing out in public and nothing that sort of gave the president a run for his money in terms of being the, the, the head of the, the, the playbill. Yeah, that's right. You can go back into the presidential archives and look at the pictures of the newlywed Prince Charles and Princess Diana meeting mm. President Nancy Reagan. Uh, pretty much handled the same way. Buckingham Palace knows how to do these things. They are pretty good at that. Um, you know, since we have Jake Seward here and, and Daniel Cruz, I want to ask you both, you're, you know, Jake, you're still serving the country. Thank you for your service uh, at Treasury. You've been uh, back in government at a time when, you know, the, the, the country's been dealing with a horrible financial crisis, and I know that's something that occupies a lot of your time. Uh, and Daniel obviously keeps... Uh, his hand in foreign affairs and, and, and knows so many people. But as you guys take a look at this presidency, um, perhaps even at a 30,000-foot level, uh, based on your experience having served before, what are the things that stand out for you? The, the president you know, had been chided during the campaign as being the most uh, famous person uh, in the world uh, in a campaign ad, and yet we saw him in Ireland just days ago being thronged by thousands of people. And it was just that same kind of feeling where people had come out and they were so excited to see Barack Obama. And it stands in stark contrast, I think, to some of the reception the president gets when he's really dealing with the tough issues here at home, a lot of smaller events. And yet we're really going back into a campaign mode where he's going to be confronted with you know huge crowds of people who are getting out there again. Talk to us for a second about how you see things stacking up uh, for the president and the reelect and how it compares to your experience with even a Bill Clinton, who was in his time an incredibly larger-than-life figure. Well, let me, let me, I'll take it from the, from the foreign policy end, and, and Jake can, can maybe talk about the, the, the reelect. But on the foreign policy side, I mean, going back to the, to the images and going back to you know, the, the popularity that the president still has in Europe, Clearly, he was incredibly popular as a candidate, and you remember a number of speeches, especially in Germany, that he gave as a, as a candidate. Um, his popularity has dropped uh, once he got elected, and frankly, Europe felt uh, ignored by this presidency and felt like the, the, they didn't have you know, enough, uh, enough attention from the United States. And so this trip kind of puts Europe back on the map, and it's not just France, but it's England, it's Ireland, and it's really the entire continent. And it shows that the president of the United States still has a, you know, a, a tight, close, in, in key relationship with Europe. And having those images in all the European papers over the course of several days, I think, is, is, is very, very, very important and, and, uh, and changes uh, the, the direction that he was on in the last, uh, in the last few months. Uh, in terms of the reelect, I'll let, I'll let uh, Jake you know, comment on how he thinks uh, this is playing out. Well, I mean, look, there's always a, a danger when you go overseas. Presidents love to go overseas because they typically get a much warmer reception. Not always, but, but typically much warmer reception than they do um, domestically. I mean, there's nothing to match the power of going. Uh, President Clinton went to Ghana. I think President Bush did as well. And you know, crowds of hundreds of thousands of people are just incredibly excited. If you're a president who's used to sitting around in the White House and getting beat up every day, I mean, it's incredibly refreshing. And you got to find the right balance. I remember I, I moved to Washington in 1991, and, and uh, former President Bush, H.W. Bush, was um, at the time quite popular, the wake of the Persian Gulf War. And some friends of mine developed a T-shirt that looked like a concert tour T-shirt, and it was kind of, they called it the President Bush 
Anywhere But America tour. And it listed <laughs> mm-hmm. all the trips he'd taken over the last years because he was in the glow of the Persian Gulf War. He spent a lot of time overseas. It was very much a cheap shot. It, it drove him crazy, you know, because he viewed, he, he heard about the T-shirts. They got a little tension. And it drove him nuts that people thought he was out not tending to America's business, when in fact, in a lot of ways, he was doing some very important things and kind of building a coalition around the Gulf. But he enjoyed that offshore stage. And you got to find the right balance between those images of being the leader of the United States and being on that big stage, whether it's in Ghana or Japan or in or in uh, Deauville this week, and being connected to the American people. Because most Americans, frankly, at the end of the day, they don't care that you went to Ireland. They don't really care that you went to England. They care about what you do for them. We still have 9% unemployment. And the present, you know, you, you find the right balance between those kinds of photos and the photos that show that you're tending to the home front. Hey, Josh, I have one thing that I really want to get out here at the end of our discussion uh, with these two great folks uh, on polyoptics uh, this week. And, and that goes to something that we weren't able to touch on uh, specifically in last week's broadcast. But uh, Daniel Cruz, Jake Seward, uh, I know you're aware and probably have seen and read the transcript of the meeting that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu had with uh, with President Obama in the Oval Office. And this is something that I think is, is was large at the time and will continue to be uh, growing in, in, in the uh, the public's perception of our relationship as we try and tackle issues of, of, of peace between Palestinian authority and, and Israel. But Bibi Netanyahu came into the White House, sat there with the president for hours, had lunch, they got ready, they called in the press, into the Oval Office as a pool, and the president said his piece, and then Bibi Netanyahu looked at the cameras and looked at the president and says, not going to happen. It was one of the most bold statements I think we've seen in this administration of defiance, but but also trying to, it wasn't a no, it was more like a yes, but. There are a lot of things we agree on, Mr. President. Your leadership is important, and we want to achieve the peace that you've outlined. But these things that you've said, the 67 border, the, the uh, repatriation, not going to happen. As I sit here for you now, this is a non-starter for peace for us. Daniel, what was your reaction to that? And I, I posited it not so much in a political way, but from a polyoptics perspective, uh, I didn't necessarily think that this was uh, what the White House thought they were going to achieve from this meeting. Well, I think this you know feeds into the broader kind of U.S. Uh, Gulf region, Middle East relationship, and and clearly we're not in a good place in the in the Middle East peace process. You saw that the Egyptians are now reopening uh, the border with uh, with Gaza. Uh, you know, Hezbollah's in, in, in Lebanon, Syria is, is unstable, and, and who knows what comes after Assad. Uh, and, and the Saudis are, are incredibly anxious, uh, both with, uh, with Iran and, and, uh, and what's happening in the Middle East. So I think, you know, the, the, the fact that Israel is, 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 uh, is worried about its relationship with this administration, you know, maybe not surprising, but certainly worrisome. Um, but as a and, press guy, you know, to see this go down in the, in the Oval Office the way that it did, were you taking him back? It was this a a, a polyoptics blunder? Well, it's Josh. I the um, Jake just Jake said something earlier about how many different issues a president has to juggle. And if you think back to last week, the president uh, traveled to New London, Connecticut, addressed the Coast Guard Academy, went to Boston, Massachusetts for a fundraiser, uh, gave his major speech about the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, talked to the Women's Leadership Forum. He was at Booker T. Washington. He, he, he was at Booker T. Washington in Memphis. 
so and then he he hosted Prime Minister Netanyahu for a, a meeting for a bilateral meeting and then a, what we call Adam a pool spray. A pool spray is just a, supposed to be a photo op. You bring uh, three waves of 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 TV cameras and and photojournalists and reporters in to take a picture, ask a question, and get the heck out. But what is very interesting about the Netanyahu visit is that President Obama made an opening statement of 863 words. And that was long. I mean, that's a lot to say about about the relationship with Israel. And you'd think that that would, and you'd think that that would probably suffice for the guest visiting. And, and the guest would say, I appreciate very much the president's hospitality. Instead, Prime Minister Netanyahu used 1,009 words in his response. So it became, in effect, a debate inside the Oval Office. That's exactly what it was. Well, it was and it's, it's interesting. I paid, I, I just learned about this whole thing. I, I only read the business pages these days because I'm a treasury. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I really had no idea. It's very interesting. You, you guys could have made that all up and I would have believed you. But I remember working in, in again in 91 and President, I used to work for the Democratic governors and President Bush, the, every president invites the governors when they're in town to come in and have a little uh, chat about what's going on in the world. And it's, it's a home game for the president. You know, there it's well their put. house. Yeah. It's their press corps. It's their and um, it's their table. You know, and you know, so the pre- President Bush invites all these governors in, and Roy Romer of Colorado, who was not at the time considered a, a rabid partisan, just as they tried to pull the pool out of the room, told the pool to stay and said he had something to say, and ripped him on the on the economy, and it was, I mean, it was. Unbelievable! It was just unbelievable, and so you, there always is that chance that the pool spray or that set piece, which goes off a thousand times according to script, gets out of control, and the press corps, as you know, sitting in that White House all day, is so used to being scripted and being brought in and out of their cages to cover those events. If something the least bit interesting happens like that, they're off to the races, and, and it's very dangerous. Out. Yeah, yeah. we really appreciate all the time that both of you have given us here on Polyoptics. Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Channel 124. POTUS is an important channel, and, and we have a great relationship with POTUS. Uh, in this case, it's politics of the United States. Our service, all of us, to the President of the United States, is something that gives us a, a unique eye and, and a chance to share experiences. So uh, I really want to thank you uh, for being with us today, folks. Pleasure to be here. Josh, domestic politics and the race for the president are a huge part of polyoptics, and we have been blessed with some great ones over the last week or so. Uh, I want to explore John Huntsman's trip his first foray into uh, New Hampshire as a presidential candidate, he got down with his bad self. That's right. You know, Adam, expectations were, I wouldn't say they were low for John Huntsman's first trip to New Hampshire, but it was it was somewhat off the radar. Uh, we were coming off of a lot of events in Washington. Uh, John Huntsman, you know, has always been this sort of peripheral candidate, having coming ba- having come back from serving as ambassador to China. Yeah, for most pre- people kind of don't President know Obama. his name, right? They don't even know who he is that he served as governor for two terms in the state of Utah. That's right. But, you know, as you look back to the Obama transition in 2009, obviously this was a Obama White House that that saw his potential. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that they tapped him for a job to almost take him out of the mix and that perhaps if you make a potential rival serve in your cabinet, 
this is this is one way to neutralize his effect, perhaps in the in the next campaign. And yet, he relinquishes his title as ambassador to China and begins to make soundings of running for president and goes up to New Hampshire this uh, in, in, over the weekend. Does the classic things that happen in a New Hampshire race about this time, oh, eight months before the primary, holds coffee meetings uh, in people's living rooms, the kind of thing that C-SPAN covers for 45 minutes at a clip. And then he does something that I think harkens to perhaps some uh, some interesting uh sort of style to him. He visits a Harley Davidson dealership uh, in New Hampshire. And, you know, he not only does he play in an REO Speedwagon cover band, recalling in some way Bill Clinton's affinity for the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show, but the guy rides a motorcycle. That's he rides why I was a hog. saying that he got down with his bad self. I mean, he's a musician. He likes to ride a hog on the open road. Um, and there was some really good pictures that came out of these meetings that sort of said, hey, okay, John Huntsman is not just a millionaire who served as U.S. ambassador to China. Uh, he was a little bit more creative than that. He's he's a little down home. He's one of us. He, he's got his musical tastes. He loves to ride. And um, he's, he's also listening. I mean, remember Hillary Clinton at the very beginning of her presidential uh, campaign was just all about a listening tour. I just want to listen. And, uh, you know, it was very effective for her. But getting out there and building name recognition um, and creating some images that will start to push down on the Google returns, uh, the pictures of you with foreign leaders in, in foreign lands um, is really necessary. And, and then ultimately, I think for Governor Huntsman, uh, is this idea that uh, he got put in a box. They said, okay, great. We see that you are a leader. You're a substantive and important uh, potential challenge uh, in a coming election. But he's extended this great honor to be the U.S. ambassador. And I think at the time people thought, well, that he's just been taken out of the 2012 running. He can't do it. And yet here he is trying to balance that. And that was one of the questions, Josh, that came up, constantly asking, well, you were serving in, in Barack Obama's administration. How are you a, a, a viable candidate for president if, you know, do you, do you think the president's leadership has been poor? And he's really come back to that service-oriented idea of when asked to serve by my president, I stand up and I served. That's right. I mean, you know, it's the same rationale that Wesley Clark probably used in 2004 when he decided to run for president, the, the same rationale that Colin Powell used uh, when when uh, he served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then contemplated being a presidential candidate, the same, frankly, rationale that David Petraeus uh head of Southcom and then uh, heading our war in Afghanistan and now appointed to be the next director of the CIA, had he run for president, he certainly could have said, my president has asked me to serve. And and when you your president asks, you do that. It, but that only uh, that ends at the water's edge. When you come back and you don't have a job, you can certainly go up to New Hampshire to uh, to Roby's country store in Hooks at New Hampshire and and talk with Debbie Schoenard, who's the proprietor, as all potential candidates do, and and chew the fat a little bit. And as you say, Adam, uh, he was a listener. He was a listener when he went to New Hampshire. And uh, having a wife from New Hampshire, they like to be listened to. Uh, and so <laughs> from from Manchester to Hooksit to Keene to the seacoast, this is a guy who went to living rooms, said a few things, and heard what, what was on the mind of New Hampshire voters. Frankly, a lot more... 
uh, understated than Donald Trump when he flew his Trump One helicopter from from Manhattan Wall Street all the way across uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and and to Manchester a few weeks ago. Oh my God, that was so absurd, but it's a great segue to what I think is a really important topic as we finish up this week's Polyoptics to talk about Sarah Palin. She apparently is getting on the bus, and she is out there. Is it a campaign? Is she polishing or burnishing up her brand? Is she coming out of the woodwork a little bit because so many people have dropped out? Does she want us to think that she's running, Josh? But she's got a big old campaign bus, and she's headed for the Northeast. <laughs> it lives. Um, it's it's so interesting. Sarah Palin, who had basically gone quiet for months uh, since she was basically pilloried for her blood libel statement earlier in the year, uh, probably chafed at the fact that all these candidates had had their moments in the sun. Donald Trump, Mitch Daniels, Haley Barber. They looked as at, like potential candidates and then they dropped out. But in the process, a guy like Trump reinvigorated his brand by being on the front pages for for weeks after weeks. Palin has been really silenced. And yet here you have a very, Adam, you know, uncommon event. Matt Drudge actually files a post, Palin to hit the road. Sarah Palin, Matt writes, will hit the road this Memorial Day weekend on a tour of the Northeast and possibly New Hampshire aboard a red, white, and blue bus emblazoned with the words, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. I mean, it's a perfect setting for Palin, who is will just get out of the bus and talk wherever she happens to be. And our poor friends in the press corps, the three networks, they have no choice but to cover it, do they, Adam? No, of course. This is a this is going to be a rolling uh, road show that uh, will require attention. And she's got her own built-in backdrop. I, I want to know if Sarah Pack is picking this cost up, if Roger Ailes has had a hand in creating this. But uh, it is something that will require attention. And it reminds me, this Drudge headline, of this great promo that we've been running on POTUS for months now. It's on. 2012 is on. And uh, everybody's jockeying for position. You can always hear it here at POTUS. And, and we're going to keep a really clean view, a nonpartisan view of trying to figure out what is the news and what are the optics that are effective surrounding all this here at Polyoptics, Josh. On former Governor Palin, I'm not a huge fan, but I do admire uh, the way they can spring a great surprise on the American people. Uh, right before Memorial Day weekend. We had no knowledge that this was going to happen. No one speculated that she was going to be in. People had thought she had sort of disappeared into the background. And yet earlier in this week, there was this rumor that she had bought a a private estate in Scottsdale, Arizona for not that much money, but that Scottsdale would represent a, a much better place to wage a national U.S. campaign than than Alaska. And perhaps the um, the art, the Arizona Senate seat would also be up for her. So her ability to relocate herself to Arizona, maintain her media presence, maintain her media properties, and yet still explore either a national run or a statewide run, this is a person who who does a great job keeping her options open. That's absolutely right, Josh. And it's one of the things that uh, we enjoy more than anything else here at Polyoptics. We'll keep a close eye on it. And next week, we will have another edition of Polyoptics here on POTUS. For Josh King in New York, I'm Adam Belmar. We'll see you next week.